Good morning. Let's pray together. Lord, may the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Today we focus on the story of the Magi. It's a familiar story. Um, we're actually a week early on this story because next Sunday in the church calendar is Epiphany Sunday, and Epiphany speaks of the coming of the Magi. It's also 12 days after Christmas. Most of you know about the 12 days of Christmas. On the fifth day, you get five golden rings. Uh, 12 days of Christmas is the season of Christmas tide. In the church year, during Advent, it's a time of fasting and anticipation of Christmas. In fact, in a, in a strictly liturgical church, you don't sing any Christmas songs, Christmas carols, until Christmas tide, until Christmas itself. You sing songs of anticipation, come thou long expected Jesus, that sort of thing. And then you have 12 days of, of in contrast to Advent fasting, you have 12 days of feasting, and you have the 12 days of Christmas culminating in Epiphany Sunday, which is uh, the, the celebration of the gift of the Magi. So this is a familiar story to most of us. The, you've got these Magi, they come from the east, they're going to find the king of the Jews, they say that they saw his star, and it makes sense to them that they're looking for the king of the Jews, they go to the capital city. They go to Jerusalem, he's not there. <clears throat> they ask around, and that causes quite a stir, particularly with Herod, who's threatened that there's someone who might be a contender to his throne. Um, <clears throat> Herod brings together the chief priests and the teachers, says, where's the Christ, the Messiah, to be born? They say, Bethlehem. And so then Herod calls a clandestine meeting with the Magi, and he says, now, you guys go on to, to Bethlehem and come back and tell me what you find, and then I'll go and worship him too. I think Herod would be a really good uh, uh, bad guy in a Disney movie. Uh, he'd say, yeah, you guys go to Bethlehem, and then I can come and worship too, um, which is pretty much his intent. <clears throat> they follow the star until it stops where the child is, they worship him, they give them their expensive gifts of gold and incense and myrrh. Ever wonder what Mary and Joseph did with that stuff? Uh, we'll talk a little more about that later on. <clears throat> then they get warned in a dream and they dodge Herod and they go home another way because they're warned. <clears throat> what do we really know about this story? It's a great Christmas card. Uh, we see it a lot in Christmas cards. But the truth of the matter is, we don't know very much about this story at all. Who were these magi? <clears throat> the magi show up, or words similar to that, in other Middle Eastern literature. They're frequently referred to people who were scholars, who were sages, who were wise people in their culture, uh, astrologers. The Old Testament uses words similar to what would be called magi, to refer to sorcerers and magicians who were actually to be stoned because they weren't worshiping the one true God. Um, these magi study stars. They see some alignment in the heavens that points to the king of the Jews. 
and they're motivated to check it out. They have enough of a sense that this alignment is saying to them that something significant is going on and something moves in their spirit that says we've got to go uh, be part of this. We have no idea how many. Uh, all the Christmas cards, the Gospel according to Hallmark, uh, says there's three, but that's normally just because they were three gifts, and if they each brought one gift, that means three magi. <clears throat> we know very little about them. I suspect that at least one of them was a woman, because they stopped in Jerusalem to ask for directions. <laughs> Mildly sexist joke, sorry. Um, <clears throat> In any case, uh, <clears throat> we know that they were spiritually sensitive. We know they noticed the stars. We noticed they had dreams. They were receptive to dreams. They were obedient to dream, dreams. After Jerusalem, they go on to Bethlehem. Now, honestly, this is a part of the story where I have a bit of a difficulty picturing because I can picture the alignment of the stars. And in fact, I've heard various studies done when they do all sorts of uh, ability to track star movement, et cetera, if you go back to what might have happened at the turn of the millennium, at the birth of Christ, uh, there was some unique alignment of stars, and they could see that. I, I kind of track with that. What I don't get is they follow this star that is some kind of moving star that takes them and stops over a particular stable in, in Bethlehem. <clears throat> or the, it says just the place where you lay, not, not stable. <clears throat> um, I, don't, I have a hard time picturing that. I've seen movies that try to do that, and I go, uh, maybe. Uh, we had a good depiction last week with a little kid with the star. That, that's about as good as I can do. Um, but in any case, that's what the text says. And, and they end up there uh, to worship the, 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 the new, the, well, we don't know. That's the next thing. The worship the Christ. When did they show up, I was about to say, to worship the newborn baby? We don't know that. We know little. They could have been 12 days. That's the 12 days of Christmas and this and Epiphany in the church calendar. It could be maybe up to two years because later on it says that uh, Herod goes to find all the babies who might be contenders to his throne and, and says uh, any child below two years is who he's looking for. Um, uh, if it was two years, what's the Holy Family doing in Bethlehem for two years? Um, why didn't they go home? Uh, so we don't know. There's a lot of unknowns in this story. <clears throat> it's interesting that where the scripture is not abundantly clear, the church at times is filled in with all sorts of tradition. Uh, the church has traditions that... Um, uh, gives each of these guys names. Uh, well, again, guys. We don't know they're guys. But uh, they, they give names to three men. Uh, they give them backstories. They give them history. They give them sainthood. Um, they say they come from uh, Persia, uh, from the area that would be Iran today, from India, even from China, as traditions. Those are all East. Um, and then there's traditions about the gifts. Uh, now, many people interpret the gifts. There's significance in the gifts. Uh, they say gold is a gift for a king. Frankincense is uh, 
like uh, the incense, it has to do with spirituality, has to do with God, has an emphasis upon God. And myrrh is a spice that's used for embalming the dead. Uh, for me, I think that's kind of, I, I don't do a lot of over-reading of the scripture. To me, they're expensive gifts was the point. Uh, I, they probably didn't go to Target and say, hey, what do I get the king of the Jews? Probably not a ham. Um, but um, who brings myrrh to a baby? Uh, Mary opens the gift and says, oh, great. Something for his funeral. <laughs> um, which is another tradition. The tradition is the gold was used to finance their trip to, to Egypt and sustain them there until they could come back to their home. Um, and the fran frankincense and myrrh, uh, she just tucked away. She may have been the type of person who just doesn't like to get rid of anything. And, and after he dies, somebody says, anybody have any myrrh? And she says, oh, yeah. I got some in the back room here. Those wise men brought it once upon a time. Uh, but there is the tradition that when he was embalmed, they used these spices to actually embalm his body. That's a lot of tradition and interesting information. The point is, we don't know a whole lot about him. What we do know is enough to really make impact in our life. A couple of side notes that I think before we, that we can deal with here is um, the Magi inadvertently contribute to uh, a part of the scripture we don't often preach upon. It follows on in verse 16, which has to do with the slaughter of the infants in Bethlehem. Um, when the Magi don't come back to Jerusalem, Herod gets super ticked off and is highly threatened by the possibility of a contender for his throne. And using the information that the Magi brought, first of all, the king of the Jews has been born, and secondly, he, they more or less ascertain, ascertained that he, the baby might be as much as two years old. He orders the killing of every boy child in Bethlehem two years and younger, which is a part of the Christmas story we don't often visit. I've never seen it on a Christmas card. Um, but uh, it's a brutal part of this, this, this story. Another thing that is said in Luke 2, 19, there's a verse there that I have always loved, which at the conclusion of the birth narratives in Luke, and I would apply it to the birth narrative, this story in Matthew, is it says, Mary treasured up all of these things in her heart and pondered them, treasured them up and pondered them in her heart. And, and that's, a, that's a beautiful picture to me, that all of the things that we hear about in the Christmas story, the star, the wise men, the, the, the shepherds, the angels, uh, all of that is something that this young woman is saying, my goodness, this is a special little baby. Every mother feels that. But to have all of that pondering that, treasuring it in her heart, putting it away, and letting it form her thinking and her care for this baby throughout his life and as he moves into ministry and into his death and his resurrection. Here's Mary pondering those things, remembering this isn't just my child that I love. This is the Son of God. This is a person who 
God with us that has a special destiny. Now, in um, the way I approached scripture back early on as I was raised up in this church, uh, in my faith, um, uh, we were taught the, the three key questions of inductive Bible study, uh, which is the way I approach scripture all the time to this day and throughout my, my time as a, a believer. Three key questions when you go to scripture. What does it say? Just look at the clear, plain reading of what this scripture has to say. What does it mean? How does it fit into the rest of the canon, the rest of scripture, uh, unique things that have to do with the culture? And then last but foremost in my mind is, what does it mean to me? And I always camp on number three, because if I don't get to number three, what does it mean to me? It's just interesting information. But when I go to number three, what does it mean to me? It has significance that can change my life, that can make me different. Um, and it's where I, I like to live. What does it mean to me? One of the things I miss in retirement is preaching every Sunday. On one hand, it's kind of nice not have to come up with a message every week. Um, I remember talking to Randy Roth, many of you who know Randy, one of the formative pastors of this church. When he retired, I called him up and I said, Randy, how, how are you doing? How can you make it without preaching each week? Because I loved Randy's preaching and it was, he had such a gift for preaching, I thought, my goodness, it'd feel like losing your arm or something. He says, I love it. He said, because the moment I would step foot out of the pulpit, I would immediately have this weight come upon me to say, what in the world am I going to say next week that has significance and validity and, and makes any difference? So I can identify with that, but I miss the weekly. I'll tell you why I miss it most, because it forces me to study the scripture in a way that says, what does this mean to me? I could never go to the pulpit if I didn't have something to say that had, first of all, impacted me, first of all, made a difference to me, first of all, said, yes, God, I need that in my life. Um, and honestly, as much as I attempt to do that as I do my own personal study, there's something in that discipline that, of forcing you into that. So when our pastors come up here, I'm sure it's the same thing. Recognize they've wrestled with this, not just for that week. Most of the time they've got it cooking for weeks and, and trying to say, how does this apply? How does this help our people? So given that, I'll give you my two tidbits of what this scripture says to me is I've wrestled with it knowing I get the opportunity to preach on it. So two things. First of all, this visit of the Magi cements Jesus' birth in time and space. It happened. It is historical. This visit validates that the king of the Jews came. The heavens declared it. These magi, these kings, these wise people validated it. They saw something and they responded. And it helps me grow in wonder 
in the reality of the incarnation. That all this Christmas is uh, stuff is, is celebrating the wonderful fact that God has come to be with us. God with us, Emmanuel. John 1.14 said, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. I love the translation in the message. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Moved into my neighborhood. If I let him, moved into my house and moved into my heart. Emmanuel, God with us through all the highs and the lows, the sorrows, the injustice, the joys, God is with us. And like these wise ones, these sages, we need to be sensitive to the signs that say Messiah has come. To the signs that say, yes, God is here. God is with us. To be sensitive, as, as the, the, the hymn we sang last week, I heard the bells on Christmas Day. To be sensitive what it takes, because it talks about how it mocks the song of peace on earth, because, because there is warfare, because hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to earth. Uh, Henry Wordsworth Longfellow wrote that in the midst of the Civil War, his son was injured in a battlefield. He didn't even know if he was alive or dead. And he's hearing this celebration of Christmas. But then it said, the world revolved from night to day. And, and in a flash, God reminds him that, yes, I am still there. I am with you. And, and it says, God is not dead. And he's still available for us. That's, that's the story of, of this, this visit. God is with us. It, throughout our life, there are signs of transcendence. In fact, epiphany means in Greek to be revealed. To have an epiphany moment is where you go, aha, I get it. And you have those moments where you have a, a sense of transcendence. You have a sign that the holy other of God is available to us. And so we need to open our eyes. We need to be like this magi who notice something. Oh my goodness, I see something happening here. I need to respond to it. And that's the big response we bring. They bring gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Our gift is to simply notice that God is here. Messiah has come. He is available to us. <clears throat> I, Dennis Plies recently gave me a book that uh, has been wonderful to me. It's called The Soul of an Indian. Um, and in it, it talks about the worldview and the spirituality of Native Americans. And there's just this one paragraph, and it captures a lot it says, whenever in the course of our day we may come upon a scene that is strikingly beautiful or sublime, the black thundercloud over the rainbow's glowing arch above the mountains, a white waterfall in the heart of a green gorge, a vast prairie tinged with the blood red of sunset, we pause for an instant 
in the attitude of worship. We need to be open to this transcendence, to notice, to stop and say, oh, that's amazing. We need to cultivate that. Share a couple ways I've sensed that transcendence. During the Christmas season, uh, Ruth and I had the opportunity to go to a Messiah sing-along, and if you like to sing and know some of Handel's Messiah, uh, it's a wonderful experience. If you love music, I'm not sure you really want to go because the Messiah is quite complex musically, and some of the songs, we all know, hallelujah, we know that one. There's a lot of others, oh, 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 um, that, um, and all these voices come in. And I'll tell you, there were times if you were a music lover, the wheels were falling off, the director was directing, pointing to groups that didn't sing, you know. Um, and then we'd all get to the last, ah, whatever it was. But on the ones we did know, like the Hallelujah Chorus, 400 voices in this church, uh, Central Lutheran, just was amazing. It was transcendent. Where you say, yes, yes, Messiah has come. Messiah has come. Times of transcendence that we need to be open to, and not only open to, but then can we stop long enough to say, oh, yes, God, you are here with us. During this Christmas season, there has been a number of times where as people have gathered, I've just stopped long enough to just look and say, these are people I love. Yeah, they've got problems. Yeah, they're quirky. Um, but these are people I love. Isn't this amazing to have that sense of God? One day when my oldest grandson was three or four, we were on a walk, and we came upon a dead squirrel in the highway that had very recently been hit by a car. And he stopped, and he was, he was fascinated and didn't want to move on. It, it was more than fascinated. He was stunned. It was one of the first times that this little guy was processing or even aware of the whole reality of death. He was very, very subdued and he kept staring at it. And then he would ask a lot of questions. Why was it there? What, what happened to this squirrel? This poor little squirrel was so clearly different than, than a lively squirrel bounding through the trees. And after a long time, he had one final question that was full of compassion and empathy. And he said, did he cry? Did he cry? And he was getting in touch with, did, did this squirrel suffer? Did this squirrel know pain? Did this squirrel know the pain of separation from the rest of this world and his squirrel family. God was with us in that little moment while this little guy is grappling with huge issues of life 
and death. So I encourage you, point number one, be aware of transcendence. Be aware that Messiah has come. Be aware that God is with us. Notice it and give worship by response of your heart. The second key point to me in this is this story has tremendous significance in the whole canon and in its place in scripture because Matthew, the gospel of Matthew is primarily a gospel addressed to the Jewish community. It's saying to them over and over again, you've been looking for a Messiah, guess what? It's Jesus. And he shows that in various ways as he talks and he's clearly talking to a Jewish community largely. And he's trying to tell them Messiah has come. That this is what this story is all about. Um, God is revealing his Messiah to not only the Jewish community. What is most significant about this Magi is God is revealing himself to non-Jews. He's telling a Jewish community that Jesus has come for the whole world. He's revealing himself to these magi, magicians and sorcerers who should be stoned for not worshiping the one true God. They're included. They're invited in. The Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, hints to this, points to this, anticipates this, talks about the temple being a house of prayer for all people. But now here it is. God's good news is not just for our own little tribe but it's for everything. And that is so hard for us as human beings to grasp because by our most sinful nature, we are very tribal. We're inclined to look for the good in us and ours with those who are our friends, our family, our immediate kin, our immediate circle of friends. And the, and the New Testament struggles with this, anticipates this over and over again. Particularly the book of Acts is continually dealing with the reality that this good news is for non-Jews. It's for Gentiles and Jews. That's Paul's mission. But we're inherently tribal. Our culture right now is so tribal. Immigrant versus residents. Muslims versus Christians. Fox versus CNN, red versus blue, evangelicals versus just a lot of people. Um, um, But this Magi story says, all divisions cease. There's no particular nationalities. There's one humanity. We are all human beings loved by God, and we are called to approach every human being as a unique child of God. The other night, I was listening to the radio, and there was an interview with Father Greg Boyle, who works with um, gang members in Los Angeles. He's done amazing work there. And what struck me most as he was talking was he treats every human being as a child of God. Beloved and cherish. This is the way he talked about interacting with a particular gang member off the street. He says, you know, Louie, 
I am proud to know you. And my life is richer because you came into it. When you were born, the world became a better place. I'm proud to call you my brother. Now, it's very natural for me to say that to my kids and to my family and my grandkids and, and my friends. But Father Boyle's challenge is not to say that not just to your own natural tribe, but to every human being. To the clerk at the store, to your political opposite, to someone who offended you, to the person who cut you off in traffic, to say, you know, I am proud to know you. My life is richer because you came into it. When you were born, the world became a better place. And I'm proud to call you my brother. This is the gospel. This is the message of these foreigners. May we have a sense of transcendence. May we be open to it. May we respond to it. And may we recognize that every human being is our brother or our sister. Amen.